chickens and rabbits and goats. Oh my, you're back. Thank you so much. It's exciting to see the podcast is growing and it gives me a boost to keep it fun and interesting. This episode continues the story. I hope we don't run out of time like we did the last episode. Before we delve back into the story, a little more about growing up in the village of Ellenbury Center. Kids being kids, we would forage for treats, and often that is wild fruit. We would pick choke cherries that grew along the fence line in the backyard. There was also a plum tree on the side of our property that was super prolific. We would shake the tree, well, as hard as little kids can do that, and collect the plums on the ground. We also would go pick blackberries on a road down by the uh, county store. Due to the very small town, and most people lived outside the village, there were a couple of kids that lived along the row of homes on the street we lived on. One of the women, I think her name was Mrs. Lloyd, volunteered with mom at the church, and we and had a son who we played with often. Next door were two related families, both were kids that were younger than most of us. With our large family, and when a family adopts, even this size family can have a majority of kids in a very tight range age. For me, Rick, who was adopted when I was, were both pretty close, as well as pretty competitive. Well, I kind of guess that's how brothers are. Now, where did we leave off last week? Oh yeah, now I remember. The small aluminum shed that we got for what was to be for a few chickens became too small very quickly, especially with the 4-H 50 Chicks program. Mom called on her dad, Poppy, for a solution. Actually, she called on him to get advice on how to make her solution a reality. Mom's artistic skills came back into play when she drew a picture of what she envisioned and needed advice on how to build what she was thinking about. We quickly learned that she wasn't just thinking about housing more chickens. About this time, we also got two rabbits. Now, I don't remember how the rabbits came to be. They were pets for one or two of my sisters. From a kid perspective, rabbits are super cute, fuzzy, and, well, pretty easy to take care of. So, chickens and rabbits. And with the impetus of the 4-H Animal Husbandry Program and her research of what we could raise to help expand our family's sustaining food source, since we lived in the village, cows were certainly out of the question. Right? I mean, aren't there obvious reasons? Okay, the answer is yes. But she found a perfect solution, and that solution was dairy goats. Goats are much smaller, they're friendly like a pet in some ways, and they produce milk and meat called shevin. When she posed that to us, we were interested because we might get rid of that awful, powdery, lumpy government milk. But goat milk? What would that be like? Well, let's continue the story, and I'll incorporate a little about the dairy goat industry in a bit, because that will be important soon and in the next episode or two. Calling on Poppy included calling on her brothers, 
both of whom were Vietnam heroes and veterans of the Marine Corps, as well as equally talented with building trades, especially Uncle Russ, who at the time lived with Grammy and Poppy in Ellenville. I hope you're picturing this in your mind. We have more than 50 chickens and now had two rabbits, and we decided we needed two dairy goats because one would be lonely. A bigger prefab shed would definitely not be enough. No, no, we would have to build something new and something substantial. Now, I don't remember the exact size of the structure, but it was designed to serve two main areas, one side for the goats and one side for the chickens. Recall that Ellenberg ha- the Ellenberg house had a substantial, okay, big, backyard. It seems from memory that it was about 35 to 40 feet wide and about 15 to 20 feet deep. It had to have electricity and a storage area for feed and supplies. Poppy and Uncle Russ came up and I remember the backhoe coming in to dig the foundation. Poppy had all the necessary tools, plumb lines, stakes, etc., and ensured we had rebar, proper nails, and tools. Being inquisitive, we asked tons of questions, and Poppy enjoyed teaching us what the tools were for and how to use them. Poppy and Uncle Russ would go back to Annalville and come back several times. Once the foundation was ready, it was time to pour the cement floor. Remember, we are not farmers or builders. Notably, Dad was allergic to three significant things. He was allergic to Timothy, found in hay, goldenrod, also found in hay and prevalent along roads and in overgrown areas, and cats. The cats were to come. This project was primarily, well, exclusively a mom and the kids project. And dad continued to teach music, yielding a steady income stream, which was important because This growing project was a hobby. Growing up, holidays were bustling with activity, as I'm sure they were at your home as well. Christmas time, we had a few traditions. Our tree didn't go up until Christmas Eve. We would go to church to the candlelight service, and when we came home, each child would put one ornament on the tree and hang their stocking made by Grandma on the fake cardboard fireplace. Come to think of it, that cardboard fireplace never went up in smoke, but I guess that's for another day. The tree had a lot of special ornaments, in addition to the Santas made from the eggs that I described earlier. I remember being fascinated by the several little bells that were important to Mom and Dad's history. We had a star on the top, But most notably, there were very large, round ornaments that were green, purple, and gold. Since large ornaments are hung at the bottom of the tree, I would lay under the tree every year and count them, and sometimes fall asleep. We would get up on Christmas morning, and the tree was so beautiful. Back then, tinsel was a thing, and so it was abundant on our trees. Our tree shimmered with the lights and the tinsel. And, because we had so many kids, it seemed like the presents were stacked almost as high as the tree. Sometimes I think they were. 
The stockings always had an orange in the toe and full of candy and what we would call stocking stuffers today. After we were done opening our gifts, each of us would pick a space under the tree and we put our gifts in little piles until it was time to take them to our rooms. Since the tree went up so late compared to others, it would also stay up much later than most. It was often, or at least occasionally, up well past February. Jumping ahead when I was a bit older, I wandered downstairs late Christmas Eve to go get a glass of water. I promise, it wasn't a ruse like other kids might try to do. I walked through the dining room and mom and dad were wrapping gifts and the tree was completely de completely decorated. I was ushered back upstairs to go to bed. I never told my siblings. What I did start to notice though was that the gifts from mom and dad and the gifts from Santa all had the same style of handwriting on them. It all started to come together. And apparently I'm not that bright. At Easter, we hunted for eggs inside and outside the house. At Halloween, the typical costumes and trick-or-treating. I didn't like Halloween very much. I didn't feel comfortable going to the neighbors asking them for candy. I liked candy, I just didn't think it was the right thing to do. I helped hand out candy early on so I wouldn't have to go trick-or-treating. Oh well, let's get back to the building of the barn. Oh, I meant shed. We were all in school one day and mom scheduled the cement to be delivered for the bottom, for the flooring. What she didn't realize was that quick drying cement was indeed quick drying. Well, we got home and we went to the backyard and there was mom with a garden hoe trying to move the cement in the large floor area as quickly as she could. But it was already starting to set. It was wild. Cement is heavy and difficult to manage. She got most of it moved pretty much across the entire floor and leveled. On the upper left side though, there was a permanent hump where the cement was initially poured that she couldn't get to before it set. While it wasn't perfect, we had a floor and it was perfect enough. It was time to raise the structure. The structure went up pretty quick. The, trick to, uh, the neighbors were looking on, wondering what are those crazy Terwilligers doing? With the Holton expertise and mom's tenacity, that structure was well made. It was very functional and pretty nice. And let's be fair, it was no longer a shed. It was a barn. We had a net 25 plus chickens from the 4-H program. Because the project was for kids and mom was always creative, she found a breed of chickens that laid blue eggs. The breed is Aracana, and we got a couple of those as well to make the program more fun. All of the free chickens were Rhode Island Reds, the reddish brown chickens you're probably familiar with. While the Aracana chickens were mostly darker colored and had colorful plumes on the roosters, with varied, more muted plumes on the hens. And they did lay blue eggs, although they were smaller than the others. 
We had one Ericana rooster though that had very long spurs and was just plain mean. Every time someone would go into the chicken area, he would attack. I finally learned to go in with a small camping shovel, so when he came at me, I could use it like a shield. He still attacked. Eventually, he tasted delicious. On the chicken side, there were the nesting areas along one wall, where the chickens would take turns to lay their daily eggs. While chickens do take a day off every so often, they generally lay one egg a day. I would go in to feed and collect the eggs. Have you ever seen a chicken lay an egg? Well, they sit on the nesting area, and when they are close to laying the egg, she would stand up, stretch her neck and head upwards, straining until the egg was laid. Chickens aren't the smartest in the animal kingdom, and I had fun. If I was able, and I did this often, I could catch the exact time that the hen. Was going to lay her egg. I would put my hand under their body and catch that warm egg as it came out. Typically, a chicken looks down at her freshly laid egg with a little pride, nestles back down on it for a short bit before she joins the, the rest of the flock. When I would steal the egg, the hen would look down between her legs and turn her head like, "Um, didn't I just lay an egg?" I don't see an egg, and she would gingerly sit back down on the empty nest. The reaction was the same every time I did it. Fun for me, confusing for them. So the research continued. Mom convinced Mark and Karen that they would be the primary caretakers for the first two dairy goats. After all, everyone who was old enough had to participate in committing to some responsibility for our. Hobby. I'm sure Mom only saw them on the fun parts because there was adult supervision. Animals, as anyone who grew up on a farm knows or has a pet, it's a huge responsibility. So in the spring, we got two dairy goats from the Shagbark Farm in Connecticut, owned by Helen Hunt. Ms. Hunt was a well-known and respected breeder in the Northeast. Okay. It's time to take a short break to talk about the dairy goat industry. There are what we call scrub goats, and there are purebred dairy goats. Purebreds made sense because they are bred to produce milk, and that was the primary purpose of adding them to our animal family. Purebred goats are registered through the American Dairy Goat Association, or ADGA, and as you'll learn in the next episode or two. There are sanctioned shows that at county fairs and others, as well as other measures of top breeders. Mom became intrigued with the lineage tracking of purebreds, and while there are several breeds, the four main ones that we got involved with are Toggenbergs that are tan with two white stripes down their face, Alpines that come in various colors and and in、um, uh, shapes of their coloring. Like black, brown, and white, and many variations in between. Nubians are the ones with the floppy ears and a Roman nose, and Sonnens are white. I posted photos of the various breeds so you can take a look. 
Initially, we bought two female Toggenbergs from Shagbark. The first was named Shagbark G. Jenny, that we called Sandy, and a slightly smaller one, Shagbark Daisy, that we called Coco. I don't know why we didn't call them by their registered names. We did, we did that for all the other ones. Anyway, uh, in short order, we also added a non-purebred goat that we called Snowball. She had a birth de- defect. Snowball was white, as you probably already figured out, but her waddles were on her ears instead of being on her neck, and it kind of looked like earrings. Snowball was already at milk-producing age, so thank goodness. The powdered milk was a thing of the past. The evil plan was working. Since we engaged on the path with purebred dairy goats, mom registered with the ADGA, and we had to come up with a herd name. The winner? Well, we used the RA for rabbits, the GO for goats, the CHI for chickens, our house was on the bend of the road, and Ragochi Bend was born. That was our herd name. So as you can see, our routine changed by caring for chickens and rabbits and goats. One aspect of a large family is that meals, especially dinner, was a big deal. Mom was a very good cook, and she made an abundance of food. There will be fun stories about that coming up as well. One of the most memorable dishes was ground beef, rice, soy sauce, mushrooms, and salt and pepper. It was like a casserole and easy to make for a big family. Mom called it Papiaki. It was a twist on Poppy's name with an Asian ending. I still make it for myself from time to time after all these years. It's yummy and reminds me of those meals. Birthdays were curious for me growing up. My birthday is May 7th. My brother's birthday is May 10th. Well, I am the boy who never had my own birthday party. My birthday was always celebrated with Rick. Early on, we had one cake, and as we got older, we each had a cake. While cake is okay, I'm not a fan. It wasn't until I was a bit older that mom would acquiesce and gave me a pie for my dessert. Still, with my brother. One day, I will have my own birthday party, but I digress. Just these few animals quickly became a full-time job. The first goats were more of a hobby because they were kind of like pets. Goats are very friendly and show some similar affection to people as dogs do. They rub their head on you, they love being brushed and petted, and they love treats of almost any kind. Newsflash, goats do not eat tin cans. Despite the work, it was a unique fun as well. The plan of providing for the family was very much paying off. Mom's plan was working. Perhaps the plan was working too well. Things started growing faster than we could imagine and understand that we were still just kids. From my memory, we outgrew the in-town barn pretty quick. Soon, we moved to Chateauguay, New York, about 12 miles away to a 105-acre farm. 
In hindsight, because of my young age, I didn't have a sense of this. Today, I pretty much think that more likely neighbors were not too fond of our pets that likely were classified as farm animals in the residential part of town. We moved about three miles from the actual town of Chateauguay and about 20 to 25 minutes from the next largest town that had a full-sized grocery store. That was Malone. The entire area was large family farms, mostly raising dairy cows. Unlike neighbor farms, creative farming was the excitement at Rigochi Bend. Our experience in Ellenburg didn't prepare us for going from a three-quarters of an acre home to a 105-acre real farm. A hundred acres were on one side of the road, and five acres were across a major highway, U.S. Route 11, that was a key trucking route. Turning into the farm, the driveway was long going up to the house. It was a large, white house big enough for our family. It had a huge front porch that was one of the nicest attributes. The biggest drawback? The galley kitchen. It was so small. I mean, my kitchen in my condo is bigger. Seriously, two people could not be in the kitchen at the same time without bumping into one another. The property had a large barn, a pump house, a granary that we used to house young animals, and an oversized detached garage. There was also a mid-sized building about 50 yards from the front of the barn. The farm came with a number of horse-drawn pieces of machinery, rusting in unkept pastures. The farm hadn't been used for animals for many years, evident by the condition of the facilities. A map of the property, taken from Apple Maps, is in the photos for the episode. I made notations of where the buildings that were now gone were, and some notes of what's there now that wasn't there when it was Rigochi Bend. The, the transition that happened with the final move of the family to Chateauguay was the main reason for writing my book that the podcast is based on. This change was the most significant event in the timeline of our family. We had lots of laughs figuring out how to farm as well as major new responsibilities. It is the time in my life that tragedy knocked me down more times than at nearly any other point in my life. You see, growing up in Ellenburg with our classmates and neighbors meant that during that time, at, at least for me, I didn't experience discrimination or any kind of abuse due to my Asian heritage. Fast forward to five Asian American children moving into another small, one flashing light, all-white town, and my life changed in significant ways that you'll see unfold as we move through my journey. Keep in mind, the time was the early 1970s. The next episode shares stories, mostly humorous, about a woman and eight kids running a farm with zero experience. In adjusting to life on a farm, this life, as I mentioned, took a turn that blended multiple devastating events from the bane of discrimination that shook me to my core and how growing up as an Asian American 
became a personal crisis. Purple Rain by Prince is one of my favorite songs. I think it's because I extract a meaning similar to what Prince said the song was about in an interview. It's about moving through the purple rain. Part of his lyrics are, "I only want to see you laughing in the purple rain." I know times are changing. It's time we all reach out for something new. That means you too. Please keep in mind as we continue my journey that we all have purple rain sometimes. What's yours? The lesson is how we move through it that makes all the difference. The episode R is a painting of Mom that I had commissioned when I was stationed in Korea. I also included some photos as well from the Holt Complex in Ilsan, Korea. They are on Instagram and Twitter, and the links are in the podcast description. Please continue to help the podcast gain more traction with your sharing of the journey and ratings on Apple or your favorite podcasting site. We're hitting some new numbers, and I'm really excited. This episode is dedicated to my siblings. You know, we all made it through the journey that changed our lens and shared the love and dedication of Bill and Barb Terwilliger. I wouldn't be who I am without the love and support from these amazing people. The Boy in the Trash Can is a pub- production of CSJ Associates.